right, Brando, we are back for the exciting conclusion to Sheck Exley's deepest dive. And literally, we're back from a whirlwind weekend doing some cave diving ourselves down in northern Florida. A whirlwind weekend it was because, uh, yeah, you're, one minute you're here in Michigan just getting up at the – it's not even the crack of dawn because dawn still wasn't many hours. Hours away, hours, hours away. And, hours. and uh, yeah, the next minute you're you're in a cave blowing bubbles, and then the next minute you're back in front of the mic, it seems. Yeah, right. A couple of great days, great dives. Shout out to all the cool people that we ran into, listeners and friends, and it was, it was just a, a fun weekend. Well, I have to make a comment about running into the Germans at Extreme Exposure. Although we've re- we've been places and people have said, "Hey, aren't you the Great Dive podcast guy? podcast guys?" and we're like, "Oh yeah, this is really cool that you know people listen to the podcast and." Or out there and recognize this kind of thing, but uh, I really got a kick out of uh, hearing our names being shouted there at EE in a German accent. <laughs> I was like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, podcast guys. Yes, very. Uh, it was very nice to see you, Jens and Cornelia. Yeah, uh, hanging out at Extreme Exposure, and shout out to the Extreme Exposure gang for. Letting us borrow the Twinkie van all weekend. That was a rock and roll of a ride all weekend. We had a blast buzzing around town in that big yellow van. Yeah, you can't miss the Twinkie van. So you're gonna make a um, you're gonna make quite an appearance wherever you go. Yeah, you're you're not sneaking in anywhere <laughs> <laughs> when you're driving that for multiple reasons. But yeah, great time, and we still got some photos to put out there and. Big photography weekend as far as getting in the caves and brushing up on the old cave diving photography skills. Just completely different, completely different than uh, the stuff we do here. I tell you, as my game evolves with the camera in hand, you know, it's I'm really starting to appreciate so much more of the photography and really wanting to just shoot, shoot, shoot. Go sit in front of the computer, look, 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 go back, reshoot, shoot, shoot, sit in right. front of the computer and really just have the time to, to be there and dial it in, you know? It's such a craft that you're trying to perfect. It's like precision master carpentry in, 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 in a way. Well, yeah, there's so many subtle characteristics or subtle, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm only, Nuances. I'm only, new, thank you. I'm only two sips into this coffee. I've literally got out of bed minutes ago <laughs> but uh yeah there's so many subtle nuances you have to kind of control and uh to get your desired image but it's fun and it's it's really like a craft you see the whole idea of it being an art versus just clicking a button which you know seems to me like that's where they want to put cameras and photography at where you you just click a button and you have a great photo all you know exposed perfectly in focus where you want it and all this whereas yeah that's fine and dandy it's great if but half of it it's all about the journey thing you know it's well, is it the journey or is it the destination in in photography i like the fact that i like i want it to be a journey and a destination well this wouldn't be the great dive podcast if we weren't getting sidetracked <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but it it it's so much is just like what we talk about, you know, with, with diving and, and taking the time to make that craft, and it's all comes back to money, right? I mean, if, if everybody that gets a camera, you have to learn manual photography. It can be very very frustrating until you've taken the time to ride 
ride that hump and get to the the next plateau and start getting you know you start getting a couple of decent pictures instead of all of them being terrible yeah you know you, you get to that point of are you so frustrated with it that you just put the camera down and you don't want to take pictures anymore or you know do, do you put the time in and you start getting a couple of good ones and a couple more good ones and like like this weekend, I mean, I had a, a ton of great shots that I was going through. I'm still looking at a lot of them going, damn it, I wish I would have done this. And damn it, uh-huh. I would have, damn yeah. it, I, I, yeah. I, we need to go back because now I want, now I see what I wish I would have done differently. Right. Yeah. We need weeks down there, not, not the whirlwind couple days, you know. But it's, it's days. a, yeah, but it's a money thing for these camera guys too. They want to sell cameras. So they want that thing to be as easy as possible so anybody can pick it up, click the button and get a, a wall hanging Here, beauty. Yeah. Here we go about the uh, money thing, you know, forcing uh, the money thing being the impetus behind the making it as quick and easy as possible. And, you know, I'm like the Ike and Tina Turner Proud Mary song. You know, I like to do things hard and rough. That's right. Not quick and easy. (laughs) So That's right. But, yeah, it was a great weekend. Um and, yeah, uh, shout out to shout out to Tom for putting it all together, and Mayor for joining Tomas, us, and, and Justin coming over from uh, the West Coast to join us. It, it was a good, fun group. We had a blast. And, Jamie and uh, Alex are down there. Yeah, good. Got to meet up with them. Yeah, yeah, just a great weekend. And ben, I was going to say, Bender, Captain Bob had a great show on talking tech that we managed to catch. We, thank God we didn't go there in person. We were going to, but I don't. I don't think it would have been. Very I good the next day. I don't think we would have uh, gotten <laughs> up on time to make the dive uh, Saturday yeah. morning. But that was a fun little uh, live broadcast they had. So when we last left Shaq, Brando, in last week's episode, que pasa tepesquintele? You know, a couple of, uh, of things that, you know that I am reminiscing about of last week was the discussion that we had about Sheck chasing the record, Hasemeyer's record. Right. You know, in the conversation that Ned and Sheck were having on the drive, and Sheck saying that chasing that set number is the best way to end up dead on a deep dive. But my counter was he kind of is chasing that number. I mean, he's going, he's trying to go deeper. And I, I, I did agree with you. Yes, it's he is chasing the record. Maybe not overtly in his mind because he's not like going to stop at a certain number. He's just going to go as deep as he can to where the fear kicks in, where that whole mind game. Right, and that's where right? he said that it's you know when uh, Ned was asking him how deep are you going to go, he said it's you know. I've got a number in my head, but it's all a mindset. It's a mind game. And the way I prep for these dives is I'm going through things, going through my equipment, going through the scenarios, going through the emergencies, all these things that I I think could possibly go wrong and what I'm going to do to correct each and every one of them and just the the pattern that I'm going to follow. And then really at some point, though, you have to give up on that and kind of just give in to your own body's experience and not think and let it all come out of you. Right. And he said, you know, one, one mistake where, where I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I abort it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's the fear was what's going to dictate the, uh, stopping point, I guess you'd call it. Right. And and we have a rule of, you know, you have a collection of three minor problems on a dive or, or one major problem on a dive it's hey let's let's call it let's get out of here we can always come back and and do this again rather than just stacking problems upon problems upon problems and just muscling through when you're already starting to spin out of control this is where the the team mentality of hey let's go regroup sort this stuff out we can always come try again I was going to say that, but that comes with experience and it comes with diving together and knowing, okay, this is a small problem to these guys or this is a, not a small problem. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like what could be considered a game ender or a, uh, a dive ender problem for some isn't always the same 
for others. But if you're well, not yeah. all on the same page, <laughs> we have an issue. <laughs> Right. Absolutely, you know, so. and and granted, you know, Sheck's seven, eight hundred feet deep inside of a cave is a little bit different for most of us out there. But the the mentality, in in a way, and even though Sheck is alone, because there's there's nobody else in the world even capable of getting to him, uh, the mindset is is similar, right? Because it's actually entering the the dive with a mindset, a philosophy to the diving, like a big global perspective rather than just jumping in the water, breathing bubbles, and, and pushing deeper. Ned starts us off saying, when we returned to the spring at 4 p.m., the basin area was swarming with holiday bathers. During the two hours it took to prepare for the dive, Sheck was surrounded by onlookers who asked a ceaseless stream of simple questions. Hot, annoyed, and losing concentration, he finally asked the crowd to leave him to his job. Courteous. Did, <laughs> did, did he say it like that? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure he said, uh, could you please, <laughs> for the love of God, the love back of away. God. He said, uh, courteously, they all backed up a few paces, and once again, commenced with their inquisition after he was finally outfitted and heading to the water his faithful entourage followed closely at his heels a few even splashed happily after him as he pulled his heavily equipped body through the current and disappeared into the cave you know the the curiosity of all those onlookers you can just imagine like yeah i mean even like when you and i uh, just go to you know, work out some kinks before a dive in, in a local mud hole, you know, at the pond there. You know, there's always families and kids and, you know, as you're trying to hook on bottles and get, get, <laughs> what are you, uh, um, what are you doing? What does that thing do? Yeah. Can I see your light? Is that, how deep can you go? Where's the how bottom? Much oxygen? <laughs> Don't forget the ever present. How much oxygen do you have and how, how long can you stay under there? And Yeah. And you look at, you know, Sheck, you know, especially back in the, these days, he's got four bottles on his back. Strapped on his back, right? <laughs> just the four strapped on his back. The quad. The yeah. Quad you, know, just, uh, you could just imagine, you know, the, uh, and I love the, the term, the inquisition uh, of the. <laughs> it was dark and the crowd long since had gone when I saw his light beam cut through the pool. In the time he was down, I made a dive into the cave, explored the cliff above the basin, read several chapters in War and Peace, <laughs> listened to some tapes, and took a nap. <laughs> several chapters. Do you think he's, I think he's being a little sarcastic, but it's, you get the idea. It was a long dive. What a trial of boredom Sheck must have experienced during the same period while hanging from the rocks waiting for the nitrogen to seep from his tissue. That evening's decompression was only a quarter of what he would have to endure in two days. If a problem developed during the deep dive, forcing him up early, he was certain to sustain a serious Benz hit. The shortest route for treatment to relieve his agony would be a 90-mile drive to Tampico a low-altitude flight to Harlington, Texas airport, and then an air ambulance to Methodist Hospital in San Antonio, the closest chamber. And this was just the 300-foot dive for him to, to drop his deepest bottles right. for, for the big dive. Prep. Yeah, it was the prep for the big dive. It was the uh, staging of the bottles, yeah. Yeah, we talk, you know, a, a bit about the, the the mental game, and and just that that mindset, that peace of mind to just to be so calm and meditative in your thoughts, to to not get stressed, you know, and you can scale this all the way back to, you know, doing twenty minutes of decompression, even, you know, controlling your buoyancy in midwater for 20 minutes. You can scale this back to having the, the clarity and the patience to really do 
a clean safety stop is, is really where this is is first started to get built. Yeah, absolutely. The next day was long and busy. Fifteen additional tanks were tied off. Sergio and Angel secured stage bottles 20 feet apart from 160 feet to 80 feet and at 10 feet intervals from 70 feet to 30 feet. Sheck made another deep dive, leaving two cylinders at 270 feet and one at 240 feet and another at 210 feet. This time, I followed behind taking pictures. At 100 feet, I stopped in the center of the narrow passage and watched Sheck, silhouetted by his powerful light, go down beneath me until his beam evaporated in the darkness. So, Brando, he's got bottles, right, just set up all along this entrance for his exit when he returns from this deep dive, strewn for the people, right, that are, you know, strewn. you know, strewn. <laughs> you know the, the divers that are, you know, the, the new guys out there that are still used, getting used to understanding calculations of, of their own bottles that they're carrying, right, that aluminum 80 at, at 100 feet where, where Ned is snapping some pictures, you know, your aluminum 80, Sitting there, the a normal diver is going to get maybe a half an hour out of that, and that's breathing it from completely full to completely empty. Right. There, uh, not traveling back and forth. Yeah, almost pulling a vacuum. Yeah, and where they're setting up bottles here, I mean, all the way down to you know two hundred and seventy feet, where those guys set bottles. I mean, they're breathing off of that bottle, breathing the whole thing empty. You're going to get a little over ten minutes or so out of it right you're at nine addas down at 270 but so going going even down deeper to where his target is you know you're talking seven 780 feet uh jesus christ you're talking 780 it's almost 25 addas you're you're breathing 18 cubic feet a minute if you're if you're uh a good breather <laughs> right so you've got right. five minutes. You've got five minutes if you're a decent breather. What is what? How many uh, cubic feet a minute would it be if you were the kind of diver with the mindset of, <laughs> holy shit, I'm in 780 <laughs> feet of water? Yeah, yeah, a couple minutes. So, so let's just think about this. You, you get the bottle clipped on. You pull it out. Pull out your your reg, wrap it around, do a quick gas check, and put it in. That you know. At thirty seconds, if you're if you're decent, twenty thirty seconds. If you're not decent, it's a minute or two minutes. If you're a real fuck up, it's by the time you get it on, you you put it in. Then <laughs> by the time you've got it on, you've used eighty cubic feet on your on your back. By the time you've got it on, right? That's right? not that's no fumbling <laughs> with the clip, right? And then you put it in your mouth, and now you've got to move. You've got three three minutes. If you're bad on gas, you've got less than that. But you've got three to five minutes to move, and then you've got to get another bottle in that time, right? You've got <laughs> so right. And this is the uh, the thing that we always come to, and it's ultra highlighted here is that fumbling builds up a little bit of CO two. You know, this is why we're so Every we're, we're so does. intense. You know about you know cleanliness and precision and awareness on a dive in a hundred feet of water and 30 right. feet of water it, it makes a difference but in 780 feet you start fumbling a little bit it's got huge yeah. consequences your margin for error is paper thin if if at all there so one screw up your reg is accidentally uh your your back bottom clip is pulled through the loop on your on your uh, oh, rag hose. Oh, you're gonna tell like, everybody about that? I told you, <laughs> don't tell anybody about that. I was, I was referring to myself. I don't I don't know anyone who's used stages or deco bottles that probably hasn't done that. I mean, it's an easy it's an easy fuck up, but um, I mean, just a little fuck up like that, and you're you're done. You're you're fried. And because that's the snowball, that's 
that's the little small snowball that's going to just go all That's fuck. getting kicked over the hill. Right. And that hill is, is like almost straight down. Yeah, especially for Shaq here, right? Yeah. I mean, e- even, you know, to the people that are, you know, out there doing dives in even recreational depths, you know, if unaddressed, it's only a few minutes. I mean, because in 100 feet, this that CO2 is four times the growth, but it gets exponential minute after minute after minute because it, right. it builds upon itself, you know. That's why we play the game of awareness of that management of CO2 all the time with buoyancy and trim and cleanliness and propulsion and not working and everything we do, right? Right, and that's why you don't have dangly fucking gear and and you use fins that can can move you with just the flip of your toes. And that's why we, you know, you, you don't have gear that hangs and off of you not streamlined and that's why you move streamlined with as little effort as possible right as little and the big emphasis is on co2 i mean it always floors me that in recreational scuba diving there is not a base laid or a foundation laid in your education of scuba diving for the importance the critical the criticality of knowing about CO2 and how deadly it is to a scuba diver because of depth and its effect on your body and how quickly it can take over. You know, I've in my library of books here, I can open up a, uh, a beginner learning to scuba dive manual from decades ago and many uh-huh. decades, you know, back in like the 60s for sure, 70s, 50s, these old ones, and they'll have in there Gas narcosis. Well, and even beyond the narcosis effect or the narcotic effect, which is more of a, I'm going to put you to sleep, which is huge. You're also building up lactic acid using the muscles, which is bad. It's your source for cramps. All of this stuff is just amplified the deeper you go. And it's amplified by the factor of the addas. So... Figure it out. Do the math. It's pretty easy. The deeper you go and the denser you, the vicious cycle of the gas density, right? So Right. The denser, the denser that gas gets, the harder and harder it is to breathe to the point where just, I mean, with no exercise at all, just the inhaling and exhaling can become like a huge workout if you let that gas get too dense. Which, well, you, it, you can't. You have no control over that gas density unless you're going up and you know up in the water column. But if you're doing a dive like this, you know you're going to, you know, for example, the 700 foot depth, 22 atas. That gas is 20 times, 22 times thicker than it is on the surface, denser, if you will. So while it takes that much more effort to move it back and forth through your lungs, that means that diaphragm that you're Muscles, your intercostal muscles are working that much harder, producing that much more carbon dioxide. Remember, muscle usage or muscle metabolism equals carbon dioxide and lactic acid buildup. That's what muscles do when they work. They build that up. We breathe and get the urge to breathe from the carbon dioxide buildup in our blood. And the, so the, that... We have pH receptors, we have gas receptors that measure these levels and give us our urge to breathe. When it builds up, it says, okay, breathe more, not to get more oxygen, but to get rid of more carbon dioxide out of your body because it's bad. Which is why he's got all these bottles staged along this dive, right? Because the deeper and deeper you go, that gas is getting denser and denser, so he needs to switch and that's to, why you to use that, helium. That's too. why the helium game, he, this is where he finally realized, I have to bring helium into this because there's no way I'm going to be able to accomplish this because of this reason right here, that's the density of the gas. Right. And the added effect of the lack of narcosis is great. So all of, that's why helium is just such a, a great gas to have. But back in that day, it hadn't been used very much. And it was looked at as like this... Um, like I don't want to call it a unicorn, but it, people were were extremely cautious of using it because they believed because it was so thin, if you will, its density was so little that it would come out of the tissue so quick you'd get bent. You you couldn't slow your your ascent rate that 
that much. But we've come to realize that's just not the case. It comes out of your tissue easier than nitrogen. It's less damaging than nitrogen to your tissue. But that's the beauty of uh, helium. And we've come to that conclusion. I think in, in Sheck's day, they were not there. They knew, like, well, they believed that it was much more difficult to dive. And it kind of is if you don't have any technique. You don't have control of yourself. You know, I know a lot of the new listeners are like, oh, yeah, but, I mean, he's going to 700 feet. But in, the reality is this is why, like, we, we bring this helium question in because diving air at 100 feet, you start to hit this density of gas where this starts to become an issue. Right. It, it becomes an issue because it's more difficult to exchange gas. We're all about gas exchange. And when you're – I would just want you to think, like, um, drinking water through a straw versus drinking a chocolate shake or a strawberry shake or vanilla shake through a straw. Any kind of shake. What's your favorite shake? Shamrock shake. <laughs> oh, you did not just go there. Oh, I, I went there. It's coming up, I too, there. man. It's coming up. <laughs> St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Your Irish heritage – that night at 11, when I turned out my reading light, Sheck was still nodding line and double-checking charts. In the morning when I awoke, his bed was empty. I found him in the van, cleaning the second stages on his regulators. He was so intent in his effort that I said nothing and went back inside to dress. A moment later, he came in. It was easy to tell by his actions that the paranoia was beginning to set in, to and fro. From box to bag, he went with long, quick steps. Good morning, I said. He stopped and glanced around to where I was sitting on the bed. Can I help you with anything, I asked. Good morning, yeah, sure, here. He handed me a paring knife and a whetstone he had just taken from the gear back. It was a knife from his wrist scabbard that would be used to cut the line at the dive's deepest point. Moving the dive up a day has set me behind, he stated. Really shouldn't be diving today. It's already getting late. Almost seven now. Just wait until tomorrow, I suggested. Maybe. We'll see. I'm close now. He left the knife and stone in my hand and bounded across the room where he began to copy a duplicate set of decompression times on plastic tags. Hey, another day doesn't matter. Why not wait, I asked. He glanced in my direction. To tell the truth... I don't want to think about it for another day. We should be out of here in half an hour. Where are you with this this kind of mentality? Like, or this? I mean, it's almost like the beginning of so many tragedies. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Where, like, you know, he's got this little voice in the back of his head that's probably going, "Maybe I should slow down. Maybe I should get take that extra day." Right. And then at the same time, though, the the paranoia is like eating him alive. You know, he's just itching to go. He's excited to go. He wants to do it. It's it's a difficult place to be for, for, right. for old Sheck. We arrived at the spring just before eight. Three sentences weren't passed between us on the ride out. His thoughts were lost in the dive. Not one of the dozens of important details could be forgotten or his attempt would end in failure. Like a team whose pitcher is going into the ninth inning with a no-hitter. Sergio, Angel, and I ignored Sheck. We sat 20 yards away on the tailgate of their Jeep, watching him ready his final equipment. Sitting there, my thoughts went back to a conversation I had with friends from Miami just before I left for Mexico. We were discussing Sheck's proposed dive. One of the questions they asked was, how are you going to feel when Sheck actually starts down? Then I was rather flippant with my answer. But now, close to the dive time and more educated about the difficulties involved, I began to rethink my position. Those who knew about decompression with mixed gases, both in the Navy and commercial diving business, gave Sheck no better than a 50-50 chance of surviving the attempt. Decompression was only one problem he had to overcome. There was also helium's high-pressure nervous system syndrome, hypothermia, oxygen poisoning, pulmonary edema, 
equipment failure. And because Shaq, he was using nitrogen in the deep mixture, narcosis. Shaq was learning how to put the entire package together. And now was the time to see if it worked. Here we go. Yeah, talk about learning on the fly, right? Yeah, well, where's the class for this? Where's the C card for this? I mean, it it doesn't exist in 2023, really, you know? (laughs) No, no, it doesn't. Although, I mean, with breathers, you've you've made like the 300 of high fours, like a pretty normal. It's common, common, but it's there. It's not a it's not what it was back in our day. Right, it, it certainly changed the game. But even still, there's a big difference between 400 and 800 feet. Oh yeah, baby, <laughs> dude, it's there's way more than just like when you double that that depth. It's not just doubling the depth, right? It's almost an exponential uh, factor as far as increasing complexity and gas usage and everything, right? Ned says he was not a daredevil. He was an explorer who spent 20 years preparing himself mentally and physically for underwater challenges. In the years I had known him, I had acquired an almost mythical confidence in his ability to accomplish amazing dives. He was simply the best and most experienced diver in the world. If it were physically possible to pull off a 700-foot, that's 213 meters plus dive for you uh, people and everywhere else in the world. (laughs) Shaq was the one who could do it. As I watched him make his final preparations, the question for me was not whether he would survive the dive, but how deep would he go? This is where that whole, um, like you said, he's going to let fear dictate his stopping point or his turning point, right? So... He's he's going into the dive not even know not even knowing where he's going to turn the dive. He's gonna let him not his conscious mind, but he's gonna let his subconscious call this dive. Right. And old Ned's got all the confidence in the world in him. <laughs> but oh, but Shaq, <laughs> Shaq knows what the fuck's going on up there. You know, it's like when you look at someone, you don't know the the crazy shit going on up in their head, but they may appear perfectly normal, perfectly sane. In this case, you know, the consequences of of having that voice getting louder and louder and louder could be devastating. This is really an exercise in, in mental control. Right, and this is, you know, being in flow, you know, just letting, having the ability to just let go and let your body do the work, right? Because you've trained so hard, you've put all the mental thought, prep, work into into the into the thing you're about to do. In Shex case, it is this world record dive. It's time to just let go and let this dive come out of him. There you go. Amazing. And just again, am- I, you, you can't emphasize enough the mental aspect of this, this the uh, the strength, control, the focus that you need to do this. At 10.45, when he finally entered the water, perspiration was beginning to soak the heavy wool overalls he wore inside of the sealed dry suit. His face was scarlet. On the back were two 100-cubic-foot cylinders containing trimix. Slung under his chest and extending below his waist were two additional tanks, one filled with air to begin the dive, and the other, trimix. With a nod, he submerged. I watched from a narrow ledge above the cave as he pulled himself toward the entrance. Once he was inside, I walked a distance down the Rio Monte and sat alone in the shade of a palm thicket. I leaned back and began to imagine Sheck's present situation. Eight minutes pass since he enters the cave. He's 100 feet inside the dry chamber, kneeling on a shallow rock shelf meditating. The brief rest allows his pulse to settle and his mind to clear the pre-dive pressure. Periodically, he plunges his maskless face into the cool water. Two minutes later, he turns on his four backup lights and the primary unit built specially for the 700-foot dive by English Engineering. With his regulator to the air tank gripped between his teeth, he pushes his weight off the ledge. 
gains control of his awkwardly ballast body and swims 50 feet underwater to the lip of the drop-off. He checks the exact time and enters the figures on his slate, purges the last bit of air from his buoyancy vest, and begins to descend into the crevice. That's, uh, and that's like if you're watching a movie of this, that's where the scene would fade and you'd go down. Um, yeah. Which is an awesome feeling if you've never cave-dived, where you... Uh, you know, you get everything going. You got you run your line, and or you got your line, and you check check your team, and you're about to uh, enter the the actual cave. And a lot of times they are these crevices that just fall down deep, and uh, you just watch the ambient light go away. Right. We're, we're I mean, even this past weekend, you know, we're we're in a in a big cavern zone, you know, outside of the open water basin. And we're going through a crevice that drops 30, <laughs> 30 feet, 30 feet. Right. But, it, but it, it goes from this big, giant cavern zone to, you know, bumping belly, bumping the back of your tank, you know, crevice that you're going for a course of 30 feet. And then it then it flattens out and opens up into a Betty pane. Uh, opens up plane. into a bedding plane there, but I mean, hundreds of of, of feet of, of it's just it's amazing, you know, to to see this play in my head because to me, right. yeah, it's, it's the same thing, you know. Uh, I, I see that scene, it, it fades to black, and it, you know, it cuts to all the the kids that were chasing them up on the surface, asking questions, right. frolicking around uh, in the pool. Exactly. That is a great point in every cave dive, yeah. And then the next scene, uh, after the kid's playing in the, the, the pool of, of the, the water there, it cuts to Sergio, <laughs> Angel, <laughs> and Ned cracking beers going, what the fuck is he thinking? <laughs> well, I hope they're not cracking beers, but yeah. <laughs> what the? Cracking cervezas in Mexico. Against the strong flow, he pulls himself down, arm over arm following the line on the south wall. Three minutes into the dive, at 190 feet, he skirts left over a rock promontory and then once again down. Here, the passage widens 15 feet and the walls are much smoother. He is forced to kick to keep his pace. His pulse quickens slightly and with added exertion and he slows his effort as he passes the stage bottles at 210 feet. And then 240 feet. Six minutes into the dive, 270 feet below the surface, he makes his first brief stop to exchange his air tank for the waiting cylinder of Trimix. At the 10-minute mark, he knows he is 400 feet down when he spots the blue garter left by Mary Ellen last June. The Whoa. crevice. Happy Valentine's Day, well, baby. Happy Valentine's <laughs> Check a little... Uh, Little reminder of that uh, good night sleep you had in the tent last time. Mary Allen's a keeper. If she's going to do that, I, w- I want my wife to leave a garter in my tanks at fifty feet. <laughs> well, well, Mary Ellen left a garter, but you know Sheck left her something even more special. He probably left her a well manscaped Sheck Exley, if you know what I mean. Whoa, whoa. Kids, if you're listening, go grab a dessert right now because we got some manscape talk. That's right, people. It is Valentine's Day, and uh, roses are red and violets are blue. I hope you wrote your loved one a little love poem like the friends at Manscaped have written for you. <laughs> Here we go. Strap in, folks. Strap in, strap on. Here we go. <laughs> now, although they didn't probably have the Beard Hedger Pro kit back in Sheck's day, you and I have it now. And this cordless trimmer, Brando, with that little rotary wheel, 20 haircut and lengths, one guard, no more messy drawers, fill in your cave diving campsite, hotel room, tent, whatever you happen to have. You don't want a bunch of drawers or, or that whole, you know, bathroom counter filled with different trimmers so you can, because you, you know people are going to be taking pictures of you. You know, you, you got your picture taken by our uh, nice German friends that we ran into over the weekend. Luckily, your beard 
was well manscaped this weekend, so you looked so confident and handsome for that photograph. <laughs> well, you flatter me and, 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 and exaggerate, but I did indeed use my manscaped beard trimmer. That is, for those of you with beards, I've had a, a beard, you know, on and off since I was about eight. Barring my time in the service, I've always had something covering my face. I've always had a beard or a goatee or something, and uh, I've used multiple different trimmers. The fact that you don't have to change all those fucking heads, those different trimming lengths, that is by far the greatest feature of this this razor, this trimmer. Now, usually on a cave diving trip with a bunch of guys crammed into a van, uh, in the 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 cleanliness shape of the Twinkie van. <laughs> uh, the the scent that would uh, emanate from your fellow dive buddies after a couple of hours in a dry suit would be a little maybe uh, putrid, might be the, the... But I noticed sitting next to you on that drive uh, back an hour back to High Springs, you definitely had used a bit of the old Manscaped beard oil. And uh, probably some of that beard shampoo and conditioner because, you know, you were a, a pleasure to sit next to. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I, I even I, uh... noticed when you got that picture with Jens, you know, you guys were cuddled right up in that, you know, arm <laughs> in arm. He, he wasn't uh, turned off by the, the scent coming from Brando's well-coiffed beard. Yeah, the beard products, the beard oil, the the beard uh, conditioner. The, that I was using that beard balm, too, which really help uh, lay those wild hairs down those wild whiskers and yeah the uh, the scent the odor the the aroma is very nice my wife has even commented that manscape products are top notch in that that clean scent from first impression to last you're going to love it and everyone who sees your improved facial hair game will love it too. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TGDP at manscaped.com. People, that's 20% off with the free shipping at manscaped.com. And use the code TGDP. Spice up your Valentine's Day this year and your year of diving that's coming up with Manscaped's Beard Hedger One Stroke One Guard 20 Links. People, get over and give it a try. Tell them uh, old James Ian Brando sent you with the TGDP code, 20% off, free shipping. Do it. The crevice walls are now separated by 30 feet of water. It's their widest point, and his descent is in control. At 520 feet, he briefly pauses to attach his backup watch and two depth gauges to the line and begins to breathe the trimix on his back. The attached pressure gauge and his watch are now the only instruments to monitor his situation. Their readings are vital. At 660 feet below the mountain, he arrives at the line's end. It has been 17 minutes since he started his descent. He attaches the line from his reel and begins his drop into depths never before reached by a free-swimming man. Do you think that's going through his head at all, or do you think he's just completely focused on the uh, task at hand? I don't think he's thinking about it myself right now. I think he's just in the zone. Okay. So he's not really even having the chance to, what I would call, savor the moment. You know what I mean? Dude, I know divers that are doing a 30-foot dive that can't stretch a, an aluminum 80 17 <laughs> minutes like 17 minutes they're out of gas and they got to go they're in 30 feet of water you know at the training quarry you know he's 17 minutes and he's a you know beyond 600 feet still on the push on the move i, I think he is such in such a tranquil zone right now it's just flowing out of him and happening yeah he says here as i entered the unexplored cave zone I was concerned about my slower-than-expected rate of descent. I forced myself not to pick up the pace. Instead of continuing its vertical drop, the crevice began to narrow and run at a 60-degree angle. Flashes of narcosis were becoming more prominent. I glanced at my pressure gauge. I had a problem. The reading hadn't changed since my last check. I banged the unit on my tank, 
and the needle jumped several hundred pounds lower. The pressure had forced the lens against the needle, but had it stuck again, I had no way of knowing. A projection to tie off was just below. I passed it and dropped deeper. The tunnel began to flatten out, falling at a 45-degree angle. I looked at the pressure gauge. It showed a third of the gas was gone. Was the reading correct? I had been down just over 22 minutes. It was time to get out. So right here, you're, you're on this dive nobody's really done before <laughs> ever. Uh, you've, it's so complex. You've got so many moving parts to this dive. And um, this little fucking gauge it's it's a little this is a little nothing of a uh i, I want to call it a, a failure if it, it's that at all but it's a little nothing of an occurrence that's just gotta like it's like that little grain of sand being planted in in between one of those those folds in your in your dura matter or your in your brain that are, is gonna irritate you it's gonna grow well, as as nothing as nothing as it is, it's also the one O ring on the space <laughs> shuttle Challenger, right? That's going to blow the whole goddamn thing up. That is a great analogy, right? That's a great comparison because that's what it is exactly. One little stupid fucking, you know, a hair was caught in there or something. Who knows when the tech put it together or when check put it together, and boom! Now all of a sudden you've got. You've got this thought just swirling around up there. Okay, is my fucking gauge even reading the right pressure? Where am I? And are all of them like this? Is it a gauge defect? <laughs> but at this point, I mean, is this not the thing that uh, he was looking for to tell him this is the time to stop? Because right. had, had that gauge not tweaked, he might have kept going. Right. My light beam fell on an excellent tie-off. 20 or 30 feet down. I took a breath and moved toward the projection when suddenly a jolting concussion almost knocked me unconscious. I looked behind for a ruptured valve or hose. There was no leak. Something imploded from the pressure, but what? I drew another breath and kicked the last eight feet to the tie-off. Quickly, I threw two half hitches around the rock, reeled the loose line, and made the cut. My downtime was 24 minutes, 10 seconds. I wanted to move fast from the deep water, 120 feet per minute if possible. The current that I had battled during my descent helped to lift me to the incline. I drew a breath and felt a slight hesitation from my regulator. The next breath came harder. Was I out of air? Again, I hit the gauge on my tank, but this time the reading didn't change. If I was forced to use the gas in my belly tank, I would miss all my decompression to 330 feet, where my first stage bottle was tied off. I switched over to my backup regulator and with relief drew a full breath. Holy hell, don't, don't you, you get anxiety just listening to it, you know? I mean, because a minute ago, like we were talking about, you know, breathing, you know, how fast you're breathing a, 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 that stage model down in 100 feet versus 300 feet, you know, having just over, you know, 10 minutes of gas. Here now he's down a, approaching, you know, well, over 500 feet deep. Yeah, 520 feet. Holy. So you're at about, you're almost 17 atas down there, 16 and three-quarter atas. Right, um, which is the thing that you know, the people got to really start to learn to realize. And what you're good at bringing up is we learn to think in atas, not so much the, the feet of depth that you're at, right? Because right. it's really all about the pressure. It is all about. That's what diving, diving is pressure, man. And yeah, atas, for those that, that aren't familiar with atas, that... A little abbreviation we use, uh, atmosphere's absolute. So it's it's the ambient, in other words, the surrounding pressure from the water, plus the surface atmosphere. That's what the absolute part is. So the atas, as we say, down at 520, 16.75 atas. So you, you are breathing gas 
almost 17 times uh, faster. In other words, each breath has 17 times more gas molecules in it than on the surface when you, where you breathe. So, uh, you know, an average breather is going to be breathing about 12 and a half cubic feet per minute. And knowing you've got about 77 cubic feet in an 80, that gives you about six and a half minutes. You from six from and a half completely minutes, full right, to suck empty, to hero, dead, dry. Yeah. Or from hero to zero, I would say. But yeah, you don't got long. And <laughs> just switching the gas takes time. And if there's anything going wrong that delays that switching, you're using, that's using gas, baby. You're, you're really exponentially increasing the problems. At 520 feet, I untied the gauges and started my decompression. It was strange to be decompressing at such a depth. This is where he starts his safety stops, people. <laughs> he's, he's 520 feet starting That's a my, safety stop. My 15-foot safety stop or my 520-foot safety stop, yeah. Knowing that only one person had ever gone deeper, I remained for one minute and then began to ascend at the rate of 10 feet per minute until I reached 340 feet. When I saw my first stage bottle and knew that I had spare gas around me, I finally began to relax. My stress was gone, but the long decompression stops were only the beginning. Now, with extra time, I began to search for the cause of my deafening implosion. The source was the large plexiglass battery housing for my primary light. The pressure had been so great that the quarter-inch lid was forced into the casing, crushing the battery pack. Amazingly, the light still functioned. Next, I counted the knots on the line remaining in the reel. I factored in the angle of the cave's lower reaches and estimated that I dived to 780 feet, a world record depth for a surface-to-surface dive. So... That's coming from Sheck's perspective, and he knows, right. right? Now he knows that he actually did crush that record. Right, exactly. And just, I mean, to think of the uh, mental prowess, if you want to call it that. Of So you're, in the, you're down here doing all the shit, all the little things going on in your head, all of the bottles to manage, all of the gas calculations, and then you, uh, you start doing some... Quick calculations on the uh, the actual depth you went by counting the number of knots you've tied and, and multiplying by the distance between. <laughs> so, well, you've got he's got he's got time to to kill now. True, true. He you know, does, it's but uh, still. so. I mean, the stressful part of the dive is basically over. Right, so now he's at a point where now it's just the the bottles are all staged, you know, all the way back home. Uh, he's just going to take a nice, easy cruise up. And when I say easy cruise, it's what most of us would call a day, <laughs> uh, a whole day working a double shift. Yeah, I mean, just think of that. You know, have you ever been on a dive where you're like, okay, this dive can be over anytime. I just I want to get out of the water. Right, you know, my right. mouth, my mouth hurts from having a regulator in it for hours and hours. Three and a half hours after we last saw Sheck, Sergio and Angel made a dive to locate his position and offer assistance if needed. They found him at 100 feet, suspended behind a cluster of 12 empty scuba tanks. Sergio handed him a slate with questions pre-written in English. Sheck wrote the answers in Spanish. At 9:30 p.m. Tepesquantle, he writes for every answer. <laughs> How'd it go, Tepesquantle? At 9.30 p.m., he finally arrived back at the surface. Sergio, Angel, and I were waiting in the light of the butane lamp. He had been below water for 10 hours and 43 minutes, but his decompression dues were still unpaid. For 30 additional minutes, he remained kneeling in the basin, breathing pure oxygen. When he emerged from the water, he resembled an old man. His face and hands were severely wrinkled and his walk faulty. Three times on his way to the van, he stopped to calm his racing pulse. Later, while struggling to free himself from the dry suit, I saw weariness set deep in Sheck's face like I'd never seen in another man. 
What came to mind was Hemingway's description in The Old Man and the Sea of Santiago's utter exhaustion after his battle with the sharks. Can you just imagine the uh, the prune prune face you get from being in the water? Your face, much of your face being in the water for hours and hours and hours. And you look at just the, the, the toll that this dive just took on on Sheck's body. We were up early the next morning. Sheck was surprisingly strong. He did most of the work repacking the van and drove 300 miles of Mexican highway before the day was over. At the beginning of our return trip, just after leaving Ciudad de Monte, I asked him a question that had haunted me since the dive. Will you ever do it again? From behind the wheel, he cocked his head gave a sly half-smile and answered, I don't know. Bam! (laughs) Well, there you go, Brando. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that was a doozy. And you got to remember, this is back in 1988. Um, We didn't know what we know now. We didn't have the equipment that we have now. We didn't have the uh, uh, experience collectively in the diving world as we have now. So in the, the accident analysis and the... All of the things that we have now that uh, I think we probably take for granted, uh, he didn't have. So he was operating in like a whole nother mindset. Right. I it's mean, almost a completely you, just, you just completed this massive, massive dive. World record setting. Will you ever do it again? Like, uh, I don't know, man. It took like everything out of me, right? But I guarantee you, if one of those, uh, you know, little uh, Mexican guys, you know, c- came uh, running up on a, <laughs> riding up on a horse, Senor Sheik, I have a t- <laughs> telegram, telegram for you, Senor Sheik, and it's a little telegram that says, Hassenmeyer just hit eight twenty. Yeah, son of a so bitch. He's like, Turn the van around. <laughs> We're going Fucking back right now. Meyer. We're going back right now. <laughs> Fill up those bottles. What an awesome story, though, Brando. Totally right. awesome. I mean, this has been a fun cave month. Cave month plus. This we uh, this was a five weeker. I think this just also goes to illustrate the impact that cave diving has had on the scuba world, which I don't think you're going to learn about in your in your usual fucking open water class you know if you're coming into diving and you don't know the the history of diving or the people that made diving even available to you you're missing out on a huge part of the enjoyment and and it also adds to your toolbox in the wisdom department he's giving you kind of a glimpse into his mindset and his mind going approaching a dive like this but I think he approaches every dive like this. I would go that far to say that. And that's where the Great Dive Podcast comes in, Brando, is because you're not going to get that in your in your typical scuba education because they're all focused on just getting you in the water and getting you on a dive boat. And the, the, the history isn't there. You're only going to get that, people, from something like the Great Dive Podcast where we come at you each and every week giving you – the information and the stories and the history that you just can't get out of a open water manual, which I guess this is a great time to give a shout out to all of our Patreon sponsors out there, our our PayPal donators, everybody that sends us messages and emails and thank yous and asking about t-shirts and wanting to get stickers, even though our crappy store on our website doesn't work we apologize for that just send us an email we will get in touch with you guys thank you for everybody who goes over to manscaped and has purchased products using our code tgdp it 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 helps us pay that bill to keep this show coming to you each and every week thank you all brando can we finally finally sign logbooks on international cave diving month yes me little uh tepesquente Tepesquentle. It's actually, I think it'd be like Tepesquentlito. Tepesquentlito. That's going to be my new nickname for you, James. Although I do like James a lot. James Tepesquentle. That is my new nickname for you following this dive. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, it's a great nickname. James Tepesquentle. I like it. James Tepesquentle. Brando, 
You will always be my old man in the sea. <laughs> That's right there. Uh, All right, everybody. Tep- hey, here, one more. Kianis mas macho. James tepesquitle. Odricado mantoman. Oloid Bridges. Kianis mas macho. All right, everybody. We will see you guys uh, next week. More good TGTP fun. Buenos nachos. Blah, <laughs> blah,